um, as a quick thing. So let me get started. We're, we're cross 20, we're at 205. I wanna get started because we have a lot to talk about. I wanna introduce a good friend, Paul Martino, who's, oh wow, you're top and center on my screen. Paul, I think is just outside Philadelphia today in, in Bucks County, is that where we are today? Okay. Good friend, VC um, in the Philly area. I, Paul, can we start? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And then, by the way, the whole gist of this conversation is going to be Paul's a VC. Wanted to get Paul's feelings about what's going on or what does he think is going to happen with the current situation in the United States and the world with startups and investing and thoughts. And I'm going to lead you through a whole bunch of things to talk about. But anyway, Paul, could you introduce yourself a little bit about yourself, please? Great. Well, Steve, good to see you. Uh, I'm born and raised in the Philly suburbs, went to Lehigh and Princeton, not far from where my house is here in Bucks County. I dropped out of my PhD program and started my second company uh, back in 1997. Got out there just in time in the Bay Area for uh, the, the big first uh, gold rush that happened. I've since started six total companies and a venture capital firm. About 10 years ago, I started Full Pen Capital. Uh, we've now got about 125 portfolio companies all around the wow. world. Some of the companies probably you know best, FanDuel and Fantasy Sports, Ipsy and Cosmetics, Grove and Toilet Paper. You know, I do have a company that sells toilet paper. So pretty cool to have that one in the portfolio. We also have Carbon Health, which runs urban, urgent care clinics right now, which right. is news. So it's really been funny to see how some of our companies are really at the forefront of this. And then some like Swish Analytics that set um, – betting sports lines as a web service have no lines to set because no one's playing any sports. Wow. Hurts. Oh, right. I right. Uh, uh, in my spare time, I do crazy stuff. Uh, I, I'm wearing my, my inside game shirt because one of my companies I started was a movie studio. We produced a film that's out about the NBA right now. So if you need a basketball fix, watch inside game because there's no games to watch. We're gonna, I want to I hit that at the very end, by the way, to talk about the story on that because it's so fascinating what you did. Um, cool. Sorry. And then bullpen capital, how big, where are your offices? You know, you do deals around the world. Do you concentrate in any certain areas and certain verticals? Yeah. So bullpen, or, what's, or what's your thesis? Kind of the, the, the funds are, you know, $150 million ish type fund. We tend to write two to $3 million checks into four to $5 million. So companies raise, call it less than $3 million across two rounds. Half a million dollars, friends and family, incubators, $2 million from a seed fund like a first round or a floodgate. And then we step in and go, hey, you know, a Series A might be cool, but, you know, six or 12 months from now, you can go get 20 million bucks. So take two or three million bucks from us instead. We call that post-seed, but really it's an old school Series A from when Steve and I were actually doing companies when we were your age. Right. So it's kind of, we have a joke in the office, we're making venture great again, because that's what a Series A was when I was doing this. We are 100% agnostic to category. We will do cosmetics and fantasy sports and uh, utility monitoring software and urgent care clinics inside the same fund. Show me an entrepreneur who has real mastery of their numbers, was a little kicked in the teeth by everybody else and has a blue collar orientation. That's the kind of people we love at Bullpen. Cool, cool. And then just one thing I wanted to, we were previously gonna talk about, but the, the, the news is so different. I wanna um, twist it a little bit. Before these challenging times, could you just talk about, we have West Coast companies here, East Coast, Midwest, West Coast deals versus East Coast deals. So you have an office in San Francisco, right? Silicon Valley, you have offices in Philly slash New York. So you're bi-coastal. Yep. Um, my back in the day, I remember when you used to travel a lot. <laughs> well, not traveling so much, but did you see a difference in your deals 
I, I know entrepreneurs always wonder that. You're one of the few people that, you know, you have double offices and you see both. The terms of the deal, West Coast companies, East Coast companies, deal structures, just that before the current weird situation, which we'll get into. I, Steve, I think it's a very good question. I think it is actually less geographic now. Years ago, it was super geographic. There were mm -hmm. East Coast and there were West Coast deals. But there are now kind of Silicon Valley style deals all around the country. And then there right. are Silicon Valley deal st styles. So you'll see a lot of deals in New York City. The terms look identical to what you're going to see if you were in San Francisco. You might even see them in Raleigh, Durham or Chicago too, because the investors are essentially West Coast investors. First round right. is a perfect example. I'm an early LP in the fund. Their terms are largely West Coast, even though their office is in Philly. And so if they do a deal in Raleigh-Durham, it's going to look like a West Coast deal. If we mm -hmm. do a deal in Edinburgh, Scotland, it's going to look like a West Coast deal because we're a West Coast thinking firm. Um, and so now it is less geographic and more about mm -hmm. the style of the fund that you get the dough from. You uh -huh. go to more traditional, what would be called East Coast firms, uh, like in Edison Ventures, let's say. And again, it's not right. for them. It's just a different style. They're looking for a different stage, style, and maturity of the company. They're looking probably for more predictable revenues, but maybe less growth. Mm -hmm. West Coast investors are looking for higher growth, maybe less profitability. The East Coast investors, again, with this new phrase, more style than physical geography, are looking yeah. more for business fundamentals, value, profitability, et cetera. And that persists to this day, all day long. And some firms are some way and some firms are other ways. I don't think it's either good or bad. It's just how it is. Okay, all right, cool. Thank you, that was helpful. Um, next thing to talk about that I wanted to go through, we have a lot of entrepreneurs, well, obviously a ton of entrepreneurs on the call now, on this Zoom room, 27 people, well, not including you and I, so it'd be 25. And one of the things I think is really important before we dig down into all of this is I find that most startups and entrepreneurs have no idea how a VC firm works and how a VC makes money. And I think it's really important because I'm going to tie a lot of the comments that you and I are going to talk about, I want to tie all the way back. Could you talk a little bit, if you don't mind, and we won't spend a ton of time on it, but it's fundamental, I think. You said, well, I was an early LP in, in first round fund. What's an LP? Where do VCs get their money from? Can you just talk a little bit, if you don't mind, the mechanics of how a VC firm works for a second? Yes, and by the way, Steve, again, a great question. This is something you wanna know. Yeah. Way, I'm gonna give you the super, super really condensed version because under the covers, the way a venture firm works, corporate organization and tax-wise, it's actually one of the most esoteric parts of the tax law. So right. if you ever really want to know how it works, it's actually a super long conversation. But at right. a high level, we collect money from people who are high net worth individuals, university endowments, foundations. So think of the school you went to, um, the, 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 Mo the MoMA Art Gallery, and, and your, 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 rich, your rich uncle. Those are the three people who write us checks. And then on their behalf, we find companies like you and write the checks to them. We split a piece of the upside with them. So this is called carried interest. And what it basically means is we get a piece of the winners over and above what we invested. And that's the incentive for us to do our job. So if a company, if I'm in a $100 million fund and we have a company worth a billion dollars, we, we have a company that our stake is worth a billion dollars. We have $900 million in winnings. I get a piece of the winnings and I, and I give everything else back to the LPs. LPs do that because they think we're going to be better at finding entrepreneurs like you than they can individually. Or if they're a foundation or a university endowment, they have no capability of doing that. So we collect the pool of money. We tend to do in 25 to 30 investments over two to three years. 
So how many companies do you look at to do 25 to 30 investments over two to three years, roughly? Uh, it depends on how you count. I mean, okay. if you really take the top of the funnel completely unwashed, it's thousands. But right. if you kind of do any bit of elementary screening, are you at our stage? Are you actually a tech company? Right. right. You know, right. you do any kind of, any kind of, we do about a deal a month. Okay. And I would say that there's about a hundred deals in that month that we look at and tend seriously. So okay. I call it hundreds at the top down to a hundred down to 10. And, you know, companies like yours way more likely to be in that 10 than an, a great unwashed all around the world. But we look, we've done 10, 12 deals that were cold emails on LinkedIn. We're one of the few funds that have done that. Wow. And cool. uh, I, I take great pride that we've done some of those deals. So it's not just the provenance of where the deal gets introduced. Uh, we'll look at anything. And so our funnel is really big, but we do about one a month at the bottom. Okay, so back to the LPs for a minute because it's gonna, it's gonna weave into the current situation and, and conversation. If you have a $100 million fund, LPs are writing checks roughly from anywhere from a million to $10 million, right? If, you know, a million, five million, it depends what your sweet spot is or, or minimum requirement is. And I just, it's, there's some important thing, things I think everybody on this call needs to know and understand, that especially in the current environment. The LPs do not write checks at moment one to Paul for $100 million. Paul doesn't raise it all at once, right? You get a capital commitment. They say, here's how much I'm going to put in. Funds like Dream It, funds like Paul's, they do capital calls and say, okay, I need your money. One of the things, that let's, we're going to transition a little bit, Paul. This isn't just about bullpen, it's the environment. Given the stock market, given the craziness, there's been times, bad times in the past where funds go to do LP capital calls and say, okay, it's time for the next capital call for $10 million. And some people come back and say, yeah, I'm not good for it anymore. Do you That's think right. that might happen? So, and if you can re-explain what I just said, because it's really important if you're going to get a term sheet from a VC, it's a little bit like when you're buying a property and you want to work with a mortgage company that can get you over the line and close the deal. Do you think, can you re-explain what I just said if that wasn't clear? Um, and if that could happen again in this current environment? Guaranteed it's going to happen. The question okay. is how widespread will it be? Will it be one or two incalcitrant people who really want to almost take a moral stand? Will it be a whole swath of people who will literally have no liquidity because all their other assets are giving them margin calls? Right. And this is where who your LPs are matter. If one of your LPs is a university endowment with $20 billion, you know what? They're going to make their capital call because they got the dough, they got the liquidity. But if uh, one of your capital calls is from a high net worth individual and they just watch their portfolio down 30%, they might decide, you know what, Martino, that million bucks I owe you right now, I, I really don't want to send you the check. Now, that's a violation of the contract that they're in, and there are severe penalties for not doing it. But you know what? If you don't have the money because you got wiped out, you can't write the check. And so this will happen, and this has happened. And Steve and I are both old enough to have actually lived through this twice. This right. is our third time at this. Okay. Back right. in 01 and then uh, back in 00 and 01, the beginning of the tech bust and then 9-11, that was time one. Then the financial debacle of 08 and 09, and now this. And so I must admit, Watching the movie for the third time, while it is still gut-wrenching, at least I've seen the movie and kind of the first time I was like, holy crap, what the hell is going to happen now? But then the right. second time you're kind of like, oh, this is going to suck, but I kind of know. And now right. we're the third time and they're never all the same, but, but at least uh, at 45 years old, I, I can say I've seen the movie twice. Hey, right. Steve, can I echo yeah. in here? I was at a yeah. family office uh, in January 2009. Mm -hmm. And I was on the exact end. I had a, a principal who just said, I don't believe in this fund anymore. We're not making our capital calls. 
and um, they just they they took our interest. We walked away from it. And mm -hmm. I'd also been on situations where I was going out there finding a buyer on the secondary market for our interest in the fund. Mm -hmm. And if you remember 09, you were getting like 30%, 30 cents on the dollar for, you know, the, the book value of that, uh, that interest. Thank you. It, Paul, when, when we talk about that, right, it is. And again, just so everybody understands. So, you know, if dream it, and we're fine because the way our, our base is set up, but if you have a VC fund, and they're trying to invest and remember, and the reason why, by the way, why you don't get all the money, Paul doesn't dream it, no VC firm wants all the money up front is because the clock starts ticking. You're measured on opportunity costs, internal rate of return. So if you have that $100 million and it's a three or four year gestation of the fund, you don't want it in the beginning because it kind of counts against you. It's like, I'm gonna ask you for the cash the moment we're gonna put it to work. In the meantime, go leave it in your high net worth savings account and, and let it earn interest before you hand it over to us. Paul, do you think for all the entrepreneurs that are listening, and I don't know this answer, by the way, if they get a term sheet from a VC firm, do they ever need to kind of diligence a little bit to say, who are your LPs? Like, or would a VC firm issue a term sheet if they were worried that they wouldn't be able to get their capital in to, for capital commitments? Any thoughts on that? Boy, you open up a big can of worms there. Sorry. <laughs> it is, but it is, it is actually very legitimate. So who the firm is, how long they've been in business, and who their LPs are is a completely rational question for your CEOs to ask them. Okay. Hey, Martino, you signed, a, you signed a term sheet with me two weeks ago. Are you going to stand by it? Hey, tell me who your top three LPs are. You know what? I'm going to answer that question. I don't think I'll answer it here in a broader group. Sure, of course. Ask me those questions. I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to say, look, my three biggest LPs are 50% of my fund, and it's this university endowment, and it's this healthcare system, and it's, you know, and you know what, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, there could be a situation where literally the banks are closed and I can't wire you the money, but I don't think I'm going to pull it from you because I decided I'm nervous. Right. By the way, look, and I'll use me as an example. Mm -hmm. Back when I started the fund in 2010 and 11, when all my money was from high net worth individuals and my fund was $25 million, you'd ask me the question. And if the, if this was, if my fund was in the same state and what was happening right now, I would look right. at you and go, dude, seriously, I don't know if I can close this. I'm giving you right. a term sheet. My net worth, I got a $25 million fund with high, high net worth individuals. If they don't make their capital calls, I'm going to leave you at the altar. I would at least be honest with you, right. but it's, it's completely rational for you to, to kind of diligence who it's from. And obviously if you get a term sheet from Sequoia, you're going to think real differently than about getting a term sheet from a first time fund that's a sole GP and 25 million bucks high net worth individuals. Two different worlds. Right. By the way, just for all of you listening, and I know you've all met with VCs and investors, one of the reasons that I love Paul and love to talk with him, he's smart, he's fast, and he's so no bullshit. I don't know if everybody would answer the way you would and say, you know, I'll tell you, not everybody is like you. You're so always refreshing. But anyway, so quick note. So question for you, you know, the world seems to have come to a stop in a way. Can be, and we're going to get into terms and deals and structures and, and just your thoughts on it. And it's hard to know because everything's changing so rapidly. Could VCs stop investing? Can they stop? Could they literally just say, we're not doing any more deals. We have a hundred or $200 million fund. And yeah, we're all working from home and we're not doing anything. Is that even possible? Yeah, it absolutely is possible. And this is where history is very important. And this mm -hmm. is where we don't know which of the two we're in. Let's talk about mm -hmm. 01, 02, 03. And mm -hmm. then let's talk about 08, 09. One of them was one way and one was the other way. Okay. 01, 02, 03, it was actually a depression in Silicon Valley. 
a million employed people down to 750,000 employed people in 18 months. 25% of all jobs lost in 18 months. eBay did a job fair Christmas of 02 for 75 yeah. jobs and 2,000 people showed up. It's almost impossible wow. I didn't know for those times wow. because of the bull market we went through. And that was a depression and it lasted for three years, almost all of calendar year 01, 02, and 03. And I remember going to VC's offices and being involved still, I was in the business the whole time, literally boredom, nothing. You know, when, you, when I remember talking to my great aunts and uncles about the Great Depression, they're all long gone now. It wasn't right. fear was the word, it was boredom was the right. word. And that's right. a kind of picture of what that version of this looks like. They go home, they play golf, they don't do anything. So yeah, you'll do the meeting, but it's a waste of your time because they are literally out to lunch. Right. Now, I paint that as the counter example because I don't think that's the one we're in. I think we're in 08 and 09. The financial right. market sees up. There's a quarter or two of complete uncertainty about what's going to happen. And on the backside, everybody sort of goes, shit, I'm glad it was two quarters and we're back to business. That happened in August. And by March, the VC business was back in business. So if you were unfortunately trying to raise money between August and March, the doors were closed. But you got to March of 09 and everybody was like, yeah, dude, get in here. I got to go do some deals. Right. I hope we're in the 08, 09 situation where life is difficult for a quarter or two. And by Christmas, everyone kind of goes, what was that again? But mm -hmm. we don't know. There are two, two examples, though, and very, very different responses. But let, let's talk about your firm and our firm for a minute, just as examples. And it's just an N of two, so it's not representative. Dreamit had uh, two days ago, we had a company acquired. Yesterday, I think we approved funding, a really large funding on one of our health tech companies. It hasn't been announced yet. We're still writing checks. Companies are getting acquired. M&A is happening for you. Are you, is everything kind of, are you still looking at deals, thinking of funding, investment committee? Well, well you know, well, uh, so N of two, you know, weird guys like me and you are going to do this at the world's right. Because we're contrarian thinkers, right. so so our N of two, I think, is a is bad for your broader question. Okay, um, but do remember the way it works. The money is to some extent plowed in the ground already. As right, as there's a risk of some of our LPs not giving us the money. The money is committed, and so even if the world is falling apart, there's definitely a period of time, almost the dead cat bounce equivalent of the stock market, where we <laughs> have the money, right? It's not like my money disappeared and went out the door with the coronavirus, mm -hmm. but maybe six months from now, I'm a little nervous because a couple of my LPs defected. And mm -hmm. so, so there is a huge time lag in the way venture firms are formed and the way in which they slow down. That's why the 0102 example is important. The, the, the market start melting down in March of 00. Most people were business as usual till basically the end of 00. Then they got right. to 01 and were kind of like, uh-oh. Maybe right. slow down now. Right. Uh, so two different okay. stories. So so where we are right now, do you think for startups, and we're just, this is, you know, a good, honest conversation. It might be hard, but honest. Do you think it's now harder this week than it was three weeks ago if you're out pitching to close around, to, to secure around? I, let, let, me give, let me give you an example. Uh, I mm -hmm. was on a call 20 minutes ago with the CEO, 20 minutes before I started with you. The uh, CEO had a term sheet from a top tier firm, absolutely one of the best firms. Mm -hmm. uh, got a call on Friday. I'm not sure if I can proceed with the deal. We're doing a review of all of our term sheets. And so, okay. so all weekend, no idea what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, venture firm came back on Monday and said, we're going to honor our term sheet, but we want to do it at a 25% lower price. What do you think? 
and the CEO negotiated back up. Right. Deal got done at 15% lower than the original price. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think she called me. She just, I think she wanted a sanity check that she did the right thing. I'm like, yeah, that's going to happen. You, you right. got a term sheet in this environment from an absolute top tier firm. They retraded the deal a little bit, but at least were respectful, explained it to you, and did it mm -hmm. within a week. I, I, I'll cut you a week of slack in this environment. Uh, sure. But don't, don't tell me, come back in a quarter and let's see how things shake out. That, that's probably, I, I wouldn't cut that firm that slack. Okay. Okay. And it's interesting. I, a friend of mine was working on a real estate deal and has a, a piece of property under contract, right? It's like, well, that was the price you were charging a month ago. The world's different. You're not going to complete the project now. And I don't want to pay full retail when the price has to go down by 25%. It just has to. So you start reaching, you know, still interested in the product, but like not at the same price. So let's get into that. Let's talk about, so first of all, if I'm, a, if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm pitching a VC and I, maybe I have a relationship, maybe it's going to be somebody new. What do you think they're going to be drilling me on harder than ever before? I don't, you know, it used to be you have to bring your A game. Now you have to bring your A plus game. What do you think? What are you going to ask if any of these startups got the chance to talk to you? What are you going to hammer on more than you did, would have three weeks ago? And you could say nothing's changed, but I doubt it. Well, no. Uh, so two things are going to happen. First, everybody's going to ask a question that's going to annoy the crap out of all of you at some point. So what is your post-corona strategy? Like literally, you know, it will be like go into the room and like pick the person in the room that's going to say that to you and almost like right. make it a drinking game in your own mind because somebody <laughs> Okay, so there's three people here. Uh, I think it's Bob who's going to say it to me. No, it's Susie's going to say it. He's, you're going you're gonna to get that. Everyone's going to know. So what happened? How did you change the plan? That's only a natural question. But I think right. the real version of it is, show me how you're going to survive longer if everything's delayed a couple quarters. That's the version of the question I want to know. By the way, it's what I'm asking all my portfolio CEOs. I'm asking sure. all my portfolio CEOs, hey, what are you doing to get two more quarters out of your money? That's the piece of the puzzle I want to care about. Uh, and I think you should be prepared to answer those questions. How can your money get you 24 months instead of 16 months? Got Steve, it. Steve, yeah, this, yeah. Is, uh, this is Sandy. I just want to underscore what Paul just said. Um, Wait, Sandy, just so Paul knows who you are, can you, I don't know if you can come off video, on the video, by the way. Can you just say who you are and where you are? Um, sure. I am Sandy Gomberg. I'm in Philadelphia, and I'm an advisor to Stell Life. Um, and, and what did you used to do? Was it interesting? Um, I, I used to, um, I was the CEO at Temple University Hospital and managed the health systems operations and president of um, the RA health system and a bunch of other stuff. Anyway, okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm a nurse. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, so I think that, that what you just said is, is really, really, really important in this healthcare space because there may be investors who are going to be smart enough to kind of leverage those investments right now, pause them a little bit or try to negotiate them down. But the next question that they're going to need to answer is that those providers, that, that healthcare space to whom we're going to sell these assets are going to be very distracted for a period of time. And they're going to slow down, they're going to slow their AR, they're going to be, they're closing fiscal years, they're, they're, they're going to be over budget, uh, they're going to be really distracted, which means the people who you thought we were going to close tomorrow, the people you thought you were going to implement the next day, they're all going to push. And so how do you then optimize that, that slow period, not burn through your money at that high run? but invest enough so that you're ready um, when that opens up for you. And so that, I think that piece is the most critical right now for all of these tech companies or healthcare companies. 
So I'll give you another anecdote just from today. I mean, this is what's fun about talking to me on a day like today. I literally give you the anecdotes from two hours ago and from <laughs> 24 hours ago, as opposed to from five years ago. So I was on a board meeting call earlier today and we had to do a PL review and the CEO basically came in with a plan of record. And I'm like, seriously? Like, only, like, <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, wait, like, okay. I don't mind, by the way, if you want to justify why you're going to stay on the plan of record, I'm all ears, but you didn't show up with a kind of B and C plan for the, it takes me two quarters longer. Do the IQ test by not having the three plans available. Uh, I don't mind, by the way, in this particular case, it might be because of the space this person's in. It's a, it's a space that's largely benefited from being able to stay in you missed the boat if you did that wow wow that, that, that wasn't your toilet paper company by the way was it no it wasn't oh he's got he's got like six of them right this company's called grove we're in grove um grove if you, you know their products home cleaning goods eco-friendly products paper the company does hundreds of millions of revenue so this is not a little startup anymore thousands and thousands of employees I went to dinner with Stu just before I got out of here in, um, in San Francisco. And he's got six plans. I mean, literally, he's got, here is plan A through F in terms of what happens. I'm like, that's the way you run a company. Right. And you were like, it's great you have A through F, but where's my toilet paper? Right. <laughs> Skip the A through F. I want the plan T. No, no, it was great. We're in, we're in dinner with this fancy restaurant. San it's surreal, right? This fancy restaurant in San Francisco that nobody's in because the apocalypse is on us. And he's telling us, you know, Martino, I, I got a shipment of hand sanitizer. I'm going to hold some back for the employees and you guys if you want them. I'm wow. like, like, what world are we in? It's crazy. It's crazy. So if we, if we go into that, so VCs are going to keep writing checks. They're going to slow down. Valuations might go down 10, 15, 20%, maybe not at all. But where, so, so a couple things, what terms do you think might change because of all of this? You know, like uh, uh, preferences or valuation or stock options or, you know, liquidation preferences. Do you, would you expect, because again, you've been through this before I've been through it, but it's more about you. What do you think, would VCs change anything or is it just valuation? So I think we were halfway through a very useful change. And as much as I'm a six-time founder and I would describe myself as pro-entrepreneur, there mm -hmm. was a mistake that the ecosystem made around governance that we were already half pregnant with that, trust right. me, this will be the nail in the coffin of. And it right. was one of my co-founders of another company who started this. I started a company called Tribe with Mark Pincus, who then founded Zynga. Mark was one of this crop of entrepreneurs like Travis at Uber and like Reid Hoffman at LinkedIn, who gave themselves super voting shares of their companies. Right. And basically the board of directors were essentially puppets because they could go fire the whole slate by invoking the rights to elect the, 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 the directors from the shareholders. And we work. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Nightmare. <laughs> you, these, these guys actually managed to take their companies public with these governance structures. So I think you're going to see pushback on uh, complete board control by the founding team. I think mm -hmm. this is an area that will fall first, as opposed to some of those other areas that if we get into a very long bear market for startups, sure, all the terms will start, the pendulum will swing the other way towards the investors. But this governance one, I think was almost dead already. And, and this is probably the first one you're gonna see pushback around your board of directors, uh, around share votes, around independent directors. 
think that's the one that I would be most focused on. I don't think I'm all of a sudden go, hey, I want 1x liquidation preference when I never asked for that before in my life. But Can you explain quickly what that means? So in case everybody doesn't know what a 1x liquidation preference is. It, it basically means if your company gets sold in a duress situation, I can get 1x what I gave you out first before everybody else, as opposed right. to being peri pursue or on the same, in the same position as, as, as all of the others. It's more complicated than that, but it, but it basically is a way uh, to have my money be worth essentially more than your common money over and above what it is already by virtue of the investment. So it right. makes my preferred shares even more, more valuable than your common share. Right. It's uh, Adam Dakin, Paul. Thanks for doing this. I'm managing director for Freeman Health. So along those lines, like we're already have seen, I don't know if this is you know significant, but a very small sample size of deals that are becoming very draconian where the two and three times liquidation preferences are coming back. Like I haven't seen those since 9-11. Um, but I'm old enough to remember when, you know, th those were sort of almost acceptable. Adam, it, East, East Coast VC firm, West Coast VC firm? Just curious when well, you've seen that. Or yeah, is it all over? No, it was but after 9-11, especially in the med tech sector, those liquidation preferences became fairly common. Mm -hmm. Would, I meant now. Oh, the one just now was East Coast. I will, I, listen, I would have bet, I, I, why'd you say that? I was willing to make a bet with Steve I, on I, I, I knew, I knew it was going to so, be, yeah. So I totally agree. I know there's a set of East Coast firms that can't wait to break out their two and three X liquidation preferences. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But I have to imagine the West Coast firms in early stage are not going to go after the liquidation preference. They're going to go for other stuff. Don't get me wrong. The pendulum's going to swing. But the East Coast firms are going to go after that all day long. I remember those days. I remember one deal, a 7x liquidation preference. I remember scratching my head in 03 going, wow, the world is different. Can, can you arithmetically explain what uh, this uh, multiplier means? I mean, if you made an investment of 10% at $10 and the company exists at $100, what does what is, what is it really mean arithmetically? Yeah, let's do the math real quick. So let's say, let's say you raise $10 million um, and you sell your company for $20 million, right? Uh, in general, the investors get their $10 million bucks back first, first and then no the problem. $10 million is split pro rata, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if I have a 2x liquidation preference, guess what? I get all $20 million bucks of yours. If I have a 5x liquidation, I get all $50 million up to a $50 million acquisition. And now the acquisition is not even in your incentive to go do. That, that's the rough math of the way that works. They're mm -hmm. ugly. Paul, are, can you think of like a situation where you, as, if you were in, on the founder's side where you would do a two, three, four times liquidation preference? I mean, is that, you know, obviously if you know other alternative, but even then, like, you, you know, sometimes I think, well, you know, maybe if I'm the founder, I should just go work at the post office because there's really no upside for me. But, but that's right. That's right. Listen, and this is where early and late stage make a big difference. If you're Stuart Grove and he was stuck, Stu is not in the situation. So I want to make that very clear. He's yeah. in a great spot. The company is, company's kicking butt, sells toilet paper. If him at a three, four hundred million in revenue at a billion. By the way, he's not kicking butt. He's what? Never mind. Yeah. I won't. <laughs> okay. He's butts to be washed. This is great. There you go. Great. Very good point, Steve. Yeah. So if he's in a spot where he needs $100 million and the only way he can get it is with a two or three X liquidation preference, guess what? He's going to do that. Mm -hmm. But if you're an early stage startup, like most of the companies here, and you're raising $2 million and it's a $6 million pre or an $8 million pre, 
any VC who's going to ask for a two or three X liquidation preference is so out of alignment with you as a founder that I don't know why that VC is in that business. So I think right. there'll be a huge bifurcation on these draconian terms for not just East and West Coast style event investors, but late stage versus early stage investors. Because if I'm an early stage investor writing you a $2 million seed check, I'm in the boat with you, right? I'm not KKR giving you $100 million mezzanine financing or right. I'm structure the crap out of it. Just really different investors. Can you? Well, well just does that answer? Yeah, good. For Paul, so and so, if I'm an early, if I am an early stage company and I'm contemplating this sort of draconian liquidation preferences, <laughs> is that going to survive the next? You know, is my Series B investor going to renegotiate that, or are they just going to structure their deal to take advantage of it? Now, so that's why you never want to do it. The next person looks at the sheet and goes, well, I'll do what the last guy did. And, and, and that's why right. something like a uh, multiple liquidation preference is a pain in the butt. Um, since, so using my data set as an example, we almost never see it because I'm a post-seed investor and the round in front of me was a seed, almost always done by someone, even if they have a West Co East Coast address with a West Coast style. But if right. I see a multiple liquidation preference in front of me, say even a one X, I sit there and I go, no, no liquidation preference. I fix it because I know the guy after me is gonna is gonna is gonna be on me. Right. I don't think I would change my behavior in a new environment post corona because the next guy's gonna hammer me more. You gotta understand, people like me and Steve and the people on this call, I really mean this. We're on your team. We're early stage investors, and once the company gets sold, our stock looks way more like your common than the late stage investor. And on the, my late stage board, I'm on the side of the CEO because my stock is almost the same as him or hers. And the late stage structured stock is the, that's the person I'm worried about washing me out or paying to play or all these scary words you're going to hear about. No point in explaining them. But the late stage investor can hammer us. I get just as hammered by it as you do. So me fixing it in my round if something dumb happened in front of me is in my interest because I'm going to be rowing my boat in the same direction as you are for a long time. And once the big funds show up, you're going to really see. I have been asked to stay on boards many times because they want to balance out the late stage investors point of view because they know I'm going to think like the CEO. Um, so just, just there, there's a real, a real uh, bifurcation that happens once you get to a certain size. By the way, for all of you that just heard Paul on that, statement and soliloquy which was beautiful you'll hear us talk about you hear people talk about really be careful who your board members are you want people like paul look at how i mean he was you can't help yourself because you are who you are which is wonderful it's why you're a great board member great investor not everybody is like you right how many board meetings you've been to with early stage investors that are trying to screw people over and it's all about you know how much money am i going to make mm. versus just having a little different approach and attitude um yes. But that's right. But but the ecosystem is changing. And mm -hmm. as much as I thank I thank you for the compliment, Steve. Yeah. There are more and more people who look like me and you and Phil Black from True and Mike Maples right. from from a floodgate and Josh Koppelman from First Round who are right. multi-time founders who really still even if we run firms, our brain is wired like an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Listen, I tell my LPs this, and I know I'm an outlier on this, but you'll know who are people like me and Steve and Josh and people who are not. I tell my LPs, the day you introduce me as the managing director of a fund, I quit. The day you introduce me as the CEO of an innovative startup in the venture space, I'll keep my job. <laughs> and so right. you're going to know immediately who you're talking to. There's no right. hiding in a face-to-face -face or video conference meeting 
if you're dealing with a me or a Steve or someone who's a finance weenie who decided investing in early stage startups would be fun. Right. Right. Okay. That was great. Um, let, let's, if that answers your question, Adam, there was one other thing I wanted to kind of segue into. Is there any type, there's two different types of deals I want to talk about, but do you think anything is going to be more impacted or less if somebody is raising or even the optics of it, I'm raising my seed, my seed plus, my series A, my series B, I'm doing a bridge round. Given the current situation, do you, if you're pre-seed, do you think any of those are gonna be more difficult right now? And then if I'm a startup, is there something I can do about it just by changing the optics on the round or what I'm trying to do? If that question made sense. So my experience historically has been the further you are away from liquidity, the more slack you get on your question. So okay. if you're, if you're really, to some extent, once the meteorite hits, if you're two kids in a bedroom trying to start the company, you are multiple steps away from where the meteorite actually hit you. And mm -hmm. the smart right. investors are actually gonna know that they now need to plant more early stage seeds so that when the meteorite lifts and the fog comes out, I have companies that are positioned to pounce. It's right. Middle-aged startups and the later stage startups that really get hammered way worse than the early stage startups. And so yeah. I think if you're pre-seed, seed, post-seed, I think you're going to be inoculated from this for at least a period of time. Now, mm -hmm. if it's for, six, for six, 12 months, 16 months, then it'll come down for you too. Don't get right. me wrong. But if this right. really is two quarters the way 08 and 09 were, you know what? You, you might not honestly see any difference if you're a pre-seed stage company. Okay. If, if I came to you, Paul, and I said, hi, I'm Steve, I'm calling, and I'm, I'm looking to raise a bridge round, and I use that expression, any difference, any optics on that? I have thoughts, and just, I don't want to pollute you with my thoughts just yet, but I'm raising a bridge. So, so, uh, so okay, so I'm going to try and stay calm on that question. Because <laughs> in the early okay. days of my fund, people thought that's what we did. We called right. them both seeds, small A's. They'd show up, I, I, I need three months of money to get past the customer contract. And we're like, a post-seed round is not a bridge. I actually wrote an article on TechCrunch. A post-seed round is not a bridge. Okay. You do yourselves no favors when you call it a bridge, even if it's what it, what it is. Why am I passionate about this topic? I actually do encourage you to read the article. It's actually, it, it explains- We'll find it. We'll post it in our Slack channel. Okay. Yep, I'll a do it now. A bridge is only something an insider who is around your company has incentive to be in. A small top-up or post-seed round is something a new investor has incentive to be in. If you're six months away from your big customer launch and Corona hit you, and you're a promising company, you're in, your existing investors are pot committed to your company. They have every incentive to give you an incremental couple dollars to get you past the big thing. But a new investor essentially has no incentive to do so. So pitching a new investor on a bridge is never a good idea under any circumstance. A strategic investor or a customer or an existing investor, absolutely pitch them on your bridge because they need you to be in business. But me, as a de novo new investor, have no incentive to come into your bridge. So don't go into any new investor's office and ask for a bridge. Okay. Um, hold on one second. I'm just posting it in Slack. Um, and I just posted your article in the Slack thing I thought I did, S20 cohort office. Steve, I beat, I beat you yeah, to it. it. Just for okay, everyone right. that's interested, I, I put Sorry. it in the all, all vertical uh, channel. Okay, I already, I deleted it. You got it. Okay, all right, cool. So, and Paul, by the way, the way we look at it is when everybody says, somebody says, I'm, I'm, a, I'm doing a bridge round, just optics, right? I learned this from Josh. Josh always said, well, I'm raising my A. Really, is it an A? Like, never burn a letter, right? Because if you go forward, you can't go back. Be really careful on the words that you use. 
Anyway, for bridge round, what I've always learned, and we kind of talk to people, it's a bridge to where? Like, yeah. is it a bridge or is it a pier that you just walk off and you drop into the water? Like, Thank it's you. a bridge to what? It's a bridge to what next fundable milestone? And I say, I see 90% entrepreneurs, it's a bridge to nowhere. And it's just, it's a horrible term. And like you said, it's, it's insiders that are almost trying to protect their existing investment and just want better terms. So, okay. Um, so you talked about seed series A, we talked about bridge. Let me just bring up, I jotted down a couple of notes. Uh, what was the next thing I want to talk to you about? And then we're almost, we're going to open it up for questions. Um, terms change, grid rounds, investment timelines. Do you think anything changes? Because usually, you know, most startups don't go public, they get acquired. Do you think things will change because of this, that the gestation period when a VC investor will look for five or seven or eight years, do you think anything changes where, is it eight or nine years away now? Does any of that dynamic come into play? I, I don't have an answer. I was just kind of thinking about it myself. You know what, Steve? It honestly doesn't matter because it sucks so bad already, it can't possibly be worse. I'm okay. really not kidding when I say that. Companies are staying private way too long the, the huge pools of capital that let you do, look, you know, Uber is a perfect example. Let, let, let's talk about why Travis's weird corporate structure, et cetera, really got him in trouble. If, mm -hmm. if we were in a normal time, he'd still be the CEO of the company. Why? The company would have gone public earlier. It would have mm -hmm. changed the governance. He wouldn't have been able to raise $4 billion on a napkin over a weekend. Right. It is not rational to be raised $4 billion from one investor over a weekend. That was SoftBank or whoever it was. Right. right. That leads to bad behavior. And right. so it also leads to companies not selling nor going public nor having the currency as a public company to roll up other companies. Right. And so there's no way Corona made this any worse because it was literally as bad as it could possibly be right now. And mm -hmm. that actually needs to change in our business. We need companies to be encouraged to go public earlier. We need more liquidity in the system. It really is crazy. But why go public with all of the Sarbanes-Oxley requirements right. when you can raise $4 billion on a weekend by having one meeting with one person? Right, right. Interesting. That's not, okay. That, that's not our world, though, Steve. That's the latest right. world. Somebody's right. got to fix that problem. Or it might be getting fixed by itself and SoftBank and all their deals blowing up. But anyway, um, so one last thing, and I wanted to open up for questions if, if you have the time and people have questions. Can we just talk about something completely different? At the end of the day, you're an entrepreneur. Can you tell about like, you know, your, your cousin and there was a movie and some scandal and, and you're like, that don't sell your rights. Can you tell a little bit? It's just an interesting story because at heart, like a dream that we're all entrepreneurs. And we're always in the hustle. What's the next thing? Can you talk a little bit about the movie you did and why and how it I, came about? And then we'll come back. Steve, I appreciate the question. And I'll give it not just as a little plug for the film, but I'm still an entrepreneur. And so my cousin years ago was involved in one of the biggest sports scandals in history. His, his high school buddy was an NBA referee and he bet on the games that, that he refereed. It was probably one of the biggest scandals ever happened in the history of the NBA. My cousin called me up one day when he got out of jail. Yes, he went to jail for this. And he says, Paulie, you're the only respectable business guy I know. Um, can you help me have a life rights deal? Of course, he would talk that way because Tommy Martino is my cousin and he would talk that way. Um, and I said, yeah, I'll help you. And, you know, I just bought his life rights almost on a lark. And months went by and I ran into a producer. And I said, wait a minute. I know people at NBC and Comcast. Wait right. a minute. I've done deals with Hollywood. And, you know, the next thing I knew, I had this Rolodex from having been a venture person for six, eight years and having started six companies. I was like, you know what? I know how to make this movie. And it was a really exciting moment. It's like the moment you all have when you started your companies. At some point, I realized I actually knew what I was doing. 
I hired the people, <laughs> I raised the money, we got the script done, and the film was out, came out in theaters November 1st. It's been on video demand since February, and uh, you'll probably see a lot more of it over the next couple months because there are no NBA games to watch. <laughs> as an entrepreneur, for a lucky break, and this is actually my lucky break. We're in negotiations with some of the big, big networks now because they have no NBA content, and I got a cool movie about one of the biggest sports stories in history. And you know what? That's what you wait for as an entrepreneur. And the day I feel like a fund manager, I promise you I'm quitting. <laughs> what, digital right, network? what digital network is it on? I've been trying to find it. Get it. Go, it's on Amazon. It's on Vudu. It's on DirecTV. It's on and Paul, What's it called again? Inside game. Inside game. Inside game. Fine. Thank you. And, Thank you. and Paul, jokes aside, I went to Cardinal Howard right outside of Philadelphia. <laughs> and he's our most famous alumni now. <laughs> That's awesome. Nice, yeah. nice okay. Gary. <laughs> Love it. It's so cool. That's so cool. I, I have a two-part question if you're opening up to questions. He is. Anything about the NBA and basketball, nothing about venture. No, go ahead. <laughs> AJ. AJ, just say name your, where you're from and name your company real quick. Okay, I did your funny, AJ, and uh, my company is I2Chain. We secure identity and information, the two most valuable assets for uh, any enterprise. And we can help you with some of your copyright stuff as well. Uh, and where, where uh, are you well. in the world? Uh, we, we are in uh, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, right in the uh, heart of uh, where perhaps Corona started in the uh, US, right? But uh, hopefully this is also the place where the solution for Corona will come out from as well. There you go, cool. All right. Cool. And your question. Uh, question. So, how you are an early investor, right, Paul? And how many companies meet their first year numbers after your investment? And I have a two-part question, but first, if you so, would answer that. So it's almost none, but it's funny because the ones that do triple their numbers. So it, it really is. It really is funny. So when you say you'll never hit your plan, my experience is you almost never hit your plan. So a company comes in and says, I'm going to grow at 3x year over year. That company either comes in and does five or six the next year, or they do one and a half to two or zero. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, my experience is you're always high, you're, 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 you're never higher, you're never right. And there's a big difference on the consumer versus the enterprise side. My enterprise companies surprise me to the downside more often, and my consumer companies surprise me to the upside more often. It doesn't mean in the long run those companies are better or worse, but there are different sales effects to a direct-to-consumer company than an enterprise company. And uh, I, I like my consumer investments because I always look smarter faster, but the enterprise ones, you look, uh, you look smarter later. Cool. And, and that brings me to the second part. If, if most of your enterprise customers uh, do not meet, your, meet their first-time numbers, would you still prefer your CEOs to come out with, uh, uh, you know, numbers that break the boundaries or uh, are published to break the boundaries or uh, be conservative in, in, in their thought process? What is your preference from CEOs? So, so you know the stuff. I mean, you've seen hundreds of companies. What is your preference? So big asterisk, I'll give you my preference, but I'm a weird cat on this. When you show up and show me your 2023 sales projection, you almost failed your IQ test if you came into my office. Because I don't even believe your 2021 plan, let alone your <laughs> Now, a lot of other venture firms, they show me your 2023 sales projection so I can know you can be a $100 million company. I think that's all a load of BS. Show me you can go from $500,000 this year to $3 million next year, and maybe we can have a conversation. So mm -hmm. I am super short-term focused on the operational needs of your company to be able to hit a 12-month plan. 
I am in a very small minority in this business. So most of them want to see how big is it? How big is the team? I want to get in there and go, you got one salespeople, one salesperson, you got to go to four. How in the world are you going to do that? What's the efficiencies of one salesperson you got? You know, if you hire the wrong two salespeople, you end up with 2 million instead of 4 million, you know? And so, so I, I, I'm right in the weeds on that and, and probably a huge outlier on that question. Thank you. Thank you. Love, love your responses, Paul. And uh, that, uh, that reflects back to your first statements of why you require a blue collared uh, CEO. But I really respect and love your responses. Yeah, thank you. you like them. Other questions? Yeah, I'll ask a question. Uh, hey, Paul, it's Peter from Hatch. We met about uh, two years ago, I think. Thanks for the mail today. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw you're on the schedule. I'm like, I got to reach out to them. So hey, uh, remind them where you are in the world. Oh uh, yeah, we're in Hoboken. So you know, you did a lot of the filming up there uh, okay. last time we talked. Yeah, I, we still have to have some uh, some sandwiches the next time you're here, though. Right. Uh, so, you know, what do you feel? So this is a situation like we were uh, past year. We've been growing at a decent clip, right? Um, investors, so often investors are looking at like the past twelve months. What was your 2017? What was your 2018, 2019? Right. And we had this, um, we launched product mid-year uh, 2018, right? So from mid-year 2018, we we're at 1.2 million in revenue. We doubled really fast at 2.2, 2.4 by the end of the year. So in half the year. Uh, then we had to go through all these deployments. It's actually something that you guys actually expected. Hey, you've got all these new customers. How are you going to be able to deploy them so quickly? Uh, so then 2019, right, we hit 3.6 in, in booked MR, uh, ARR, right? So we still got that growth. But, you know, when a company comes to you early on and, and says, hey, we're going to do this next year, that's assuming we have the ability to hire those four sales reps. Yeah. Like, what do you expect from when they don't have the ability to hire those four sales reps? Do you, you obviously expect progress? But how much do you, do you expect them to hit that same number without, without raising the capital? So, Peter, you know this better than, than most because we actually did essentially this exercise with you. You know, yep. we literally, I want to see your Excel spreadsheet. Peter, your plan says you're hiring 12 salespeople this year. Okay, IQ points off for that. You're, you can only hire <laughs> right? Because, you know, you, every yeah. once in a while I'll see companies 12 people. I'll be 72 people at the end of the year. I'm like, have you seen? Now, it might be different post-corona. Hiring might get easier. But right, yeah, yeah. what company have yeah. you seen go from 12 people to 72 people in the current hiring environment? So, so my question is directly, my question back to you is not what will the growth rate be with the people? It's how realistic do I gauge your plan to be? And how much have you passed my IQ test for knowing how to operate your company over the next 12 months? Interesting. And so, so yeah. So you show up yeah. and say, I need, Paul, I need to hire four salespeople. I think I can hire four salespeople. The first two I'm going to onboard in the first quarter, the second two I'll onboard in the third quarter, and I think I get yeah. sales efficiency come Q4. But you know what? Maybe I only grow 2x because my other two people really aren't fully onboarded. That's the conversation I want to have with you. Will that growth rate be exciting enough to me or not is almost irrelevant to you passing the I know how to run my company piece of the discussion and instilling in me mm -hmm. confidence that you know what you're actually going to go do with my money over the next 12 months. Pretty and interesting. It's one of, and Peter, just, you know, I was on with the dream, the company a little bit earlier today, and we kind yeah. of started to go through this exercise, you know, 10 months from now, we want to be doing a hundred thousand dollars a month of MRR. 
<clears throat> great, and you're doing nothing today. So back that down for me. What's your average contract value? What's the gestation period? What's the trial? How many salespeople? What's your, bring it all the way back. And, and when you go through Dream It, you have to do that because if you're getting in front of the pulse of the world, my favorite expression is don't bullshit a bullshitter, right? Because mm -hmm. VCs are great at bullshitting, but don't give yeah. it to them because they'll take you straight down to the mat. Like, cool, okay, my numbers are conservative. Yeah, sure they are. Great, walk me through it. How are you going to achieve that? That's the best compliment I've gotten all year. I, yeah, when you call me a bullshitter, that's when I know we're on the same page. Good work, Steve. No, I don't. I meant it in a, in, with love. Oh, no, I, no, I, I took it as a compliment. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, other questions for Paul? We have a few more minutes. Anything about rounds, investing, what the VC really look for, what you're looking for, Series A, anything? Okay, Paul, parting thoughts. Things to think about, things for entrepreneurs to focus on in these crazy days. Uh, figure out how to, if, if you're raising money, get an extra million dollars. If you just raised money, top off your last round. Find yourself an extra six months of operations, whatever you got to do. I am very optimistic that this will pass faster. I am on the, I'm a data scientist by training. My view of the data is there are assumptions in these models that show us all dying that I'm not sure right yet. By the way, I could be wrong, but I am more on the optimistic versus pessimistic side that this will be something by the end of the year, we all kind of go, who, we got past that, we dodged the bullet, how do we improve our systems to make that not happen again, et cetera. But mm -hmm. not, oh my God, we're in a depression for 18 to 24 months and uh, the second wave of the virus is gonna really get us like the Spanish flu. So I am an optimist. But if you have those extra two quarters, that could be the difference between you surviving and not. And I, I mean, I, I might as well take this recording and send it to all my CEOs because that's what I've been telling them for the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, but, but also, do keep, do keep your head on your shoulders. Going into grumpy Gus and full-on panic mode is no way to run your company. Your, your troops are looking up to you for leadership and guidance. And while you might be worried when your head hits the pillow at night, you have to show some strength and, and conviction and belief in your plan when you're talking to the troops. So uh, doesn't matter if you, you tell Steve you're a little nervous, but you okay. got to put on a strong face to the company because they're relying on you for their job. So don't forget about that when we're in a crisis like this. Paul, thank you for a beautiful end cap to Dream It kickoff week. That was yeah. phenomenal, helpful, and I think a good reality check and, and some great vocabulary for people to know. So we're going to call it here. Um, Paul, I'm going to send you a great data science article on coronavirus that you're going to love. It's really deep in data. Somebody sent it to me the other day. It was a really interesting analysis that also said, we're making massive assumptions on such thin data. It's unbelievable. It's a right. really good article. Right. You'll like it. So. Um, Paul, thanks for joining us. All the Dreamit companies that can make it today and the Dreamit team, thank you for joining. I'm sorry for uh, the difficulty this week, but I'm glad we pulled off kickoff and we'll catch up with you on Slack. Paul, have a good afternoon. We'll be in touch.